You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody and welcome to Who Dead Want Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. Welcome back, friends, Romans, countrymen, and to the newbies, hi, and consider this your disclaimer. I have been told that my language is as colourful as a kaleidoscope filled with the word fuck, and if that isn't your thing, if you'd prefer to listen to a podcast that doesn't have the odd expletive in it, this is not the podcast for you. Uh, however, if that's not an issue for you, welcome to the Guild of Historical Descent. And it's my anniversary! Woo-woo! Woo-woo! Um, <laughs> what was that? No, uh, and by anniversary I mean it's the podcast anniversary, our first year with Airwave Media. 24th of July today, if you're listening on the day of release... It's officially one year with Airwave. Huzzah! So yeah, that's a full year with the network. I've been really bad at trying to celebrate, like, the podcast birthday. And even my birthday. I'm just very, very bad at keeping the dates in line. But I thought, you know what? This gives me the perfect opportunity to talk about someone that I've wanted to discuss for a very long time. But before we get into that, remember it is the anniversary after all. So if you're a long-time listener and you haven't, you know, decided to rate and review five stars on, I don't know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc., it would be super cool if you did that because it really helps me. <laughs> because it helps the podcasts and the charts. I don't know why or how, but like if you write a review and you actually put words in it, doesn't matter what those words are. You can tell me your favourite shade of pink. You can tell me if you could be an astronaut, what planet would you visit? It doesn't matter. It literally does not matter what you put there because as long as there are words clickety-clacking in there, it gets boomped up the algorithm. Yes, boomped. That is the word I chose. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your jibber-jabber and fact me. In fact, you I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are Mary Queen of Scots by Antonia Fraser, Mary Queen of Scots by Gordon Donaldson, Mary Queen of Scots by Jenny Wormald, Mary Queen of Scots by Rita Warnick. I'm sensing a theme here. Mary Queen of Scots by Rosalind Marshall, Mary Queen of Scots: A Study in Failure 
by Jenny Wormald. Mary, Queen of Scots, An Illustrated Life by Susan Dorn. Rival Queens, The Betrayal of Mary, Queen of Scots by Kate Williams. And of course we have our old friends, History.com and Biography.com. Now are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. But before we start, this week's episode is dedicated to Maggie in Canada. Hi Maggie. I thought it's been a while since I did a classic Tudor Queen and with it being an anniversary episode, I was saving Mary for something good. And I already promised a specific person to be the 100th episode, so you'll have to wait and see who that is. But it's somebody who's misrepresented in history, of course it is. But you know me, I love flawed characters. I love flawed women, especially flawed women in power throughout history, because they're so interesting, because there's so much more to understand about them. And Mary Stewart... Mary, Mary, was she contrary? I mean a wee bit, but oh, she just kept fucking things up. But I suppose we should start from the start, obviously. Princess Mary Stuart was born at the Lithical Palace on the 8th of December, 1542, and she is the only surviving and legitimate child between Mary of Guise and King James V of Scotland. I do think King James had, like, nine illegitimate children all in all. So a wee bit of family history here. James V, his mum, was Margaret Tudor, who was Henry VIII's sister, thus making Princess Mary the great-niece of Henry VIII and, like, a second cousin to Elizabeth, Mary and Edward. So because the way monarchies work, Princess Mary, she is the heir to the Scottish throne. She is next in the line of succession. And when it comes to the English throne, she's also got a tenuous link there through her paternal grandmother. This will come in useful later on, let me tell you. But familial connections don't always stop tyrants. So by the time Mary was actually born, Scotland and England were at war with one another. Now, the Scottish councillors had tried to put a pause on this war until Mary of Guise had given birth because they didn't want to do anything that would, you know, cause her unnecessarily stress. So there had been a few defeats, a few successes, but after this one defeat that King James wasn't even at, he'd gone back to see Mary of Guise for a wee bit, and then he headed off to Falkland. So there he was, uh, two days before Mary's born, the 6th of December, and he takes ill. Now the theory is, it's like, cholera or dysentery and it's like generally agreed that he just consumed like contaminated water or something to that effect so many timeline 6th of december heads to falkland gets ill 8th of december two days later mary is born he is ill he's in bed and he gets informed that you know she's given birth to a daughter who is premature by the way and on his deathbed it is noted that he says it came with a lass, and it'll gang with a lass. Meaning that his family line came with a woman, Marjorie Bruce, the daughter of Robert the Bruce, and would leave with a woman. So, yay, the only thing he ever said about his daughter was saying that she would end the Stuart line on his deathbed. Now, I don't know about you, but that really seems to me like a perfect trigger for daddy issues. I'm just saying. So yeah, six days later, James V dies and Mary 
is now Queen of Scotland. It's six days old. Now, when Mary's only a couple days old, but I think before her dad passes away, she gets christened at the chapel of St. Michael. And words start going around. The rumour mill is churning that the wee baby Mary is weak and frail. And a lot of this is due to the fact that she's premature. And some of this is because people just like to stir some shit. Because they see an opening now because she's an infant without a father and this makes her very, very susceptible. And people like power and as such, shit starts going down. But these rumours are pretty quickly squashed when an English diplomat comes up to visit just to see what she's like and he's like, that is one healthy baby, things are okay. Now, one of the reasons the English diplomat is there is because King Henry VIII, he wants Scotland. Of course he does. He just can't fucking help himself. And so he is trying to broker an arrangement with Mary of Guise, who he tried to marry at one point, by the way. But we'll talk about that when we talk about her. And he's trying to broker a betrothal between Prince Edward and and well, Queen Mary now. He's trying to get them together. And now before I get into anything else, I should clarify that at this point, Scotland is very much still a Catholic country. There is some Protestantism going around, but it's ruled by Catholics. Mary of Guise is a Catholic. Mary, Queen of Scots, is a Catholic. Henry VIII kind of made a big deal about not being a Catholic. Yeah. And Edward, he's, mm, he is very, very Protestant, like, mm, like super into it. Like he is raised in such a way where he's just like uber Protestant. But apart from that, Henry thinks, fuck it, why not? Let's put a treaty together. And so when Mary is six months old, the Treaty of Greenwich is put together. It is signed and basically promises that when Mary turns 10, she's going to move to England, marry Edward, and Henry's going to like keep an eye on her upbringing so that she's doing things right. And when they get married, if they don't produce any heirs because fucking obsession with procreation, that their marriage can be dissolved. Now, the treaty did also say that Scotland and England would remain separate entities, separate countries. I I don't feel like that's how things would have gone if this had continued. Um, I feel like this would have been a slowly, slowly catchy monkey situation. So here's a fun fact about babies. They're not too good at the whole diplomacy situation. So Queen Mary, she, you know, she's an infant. She cannot quite rule a country. And so regents have to be there in her place. They have to rule in her stead. And so there's two main sort of rivals to be her regent. And that is Cardinal Beaton, who's very Catholic, obviously, because he's a fucking cardinal. And then you have the Earl of Arran, who's Protestant, and he's basically next in line to the Scottish throne after Mary. So it's in his best interest to do that. So Cardinal Beaton He's really pushing like a pro-French, pro-Scottish treaty because he wants to align the Catholic countries. And 
which naturally really pissed off Henry. So this cardinal, he's worried for Mary's safety because they're, they're bloody coastal, right? And he wants to move her inland to Stirling Castle. And, you know, Aaron isn't too keen on this uh, for like a bunch of reasons. But then he decides to just let Peyton do it because he has a massive army and it's probably safer for him just to agree. And so he does. And then in was it September 1543, the infant, uh, not even a year old, is crowned, officially crowned, Queen of Scotland. And in a move that will surprise absolutely fucking no one, King Henry VIII is not happy about this and he just starts impounding goods from Scottish merchants on their way to France because he's like, no. Because Henry is further annoyed when he realised that Mary of Guise was just fucking with him. Like, she was stalling because she didn't want Mary to marry Edward. No, that was not on the cards for her at all. So he does what he calls rough wooing, which basically means attack the shit out of Scotland. Because the Treaty of Greenwich is just vetoed completely by the Scottish Parliament. It rejects it. And naturally, Henry is angry and he tries to just bully them into submission, into agreeing to a union. And Henry is sending campaigns out to Scotland and France. He's got English forces here, there and everywhere. And when Mary's only a year and a half old, Edinburgh is raided. And for her safety, the Scots take her out of there, they get the hell out of Dodge and they go to Dunkeld. Now you might be thinking, well surely these attacks are going to stop when Henry VIII dies. Absolutely not. Not a jot. So nine months after Henry VIII passes away, there are still campaigns and attacks going on and Mary's guardians, they freak the fuck out. And so they send her off to Inchmahome Priory. So she's off to stay with the nuns for a bit, but she's only there for a couple of weeks because they just, they just don't know what else to do. They're freaking out. And so they play the only card left in their hand, which is turning to France for help. Now, King Henry II of France, he's thinking, absolutely, I'll help you, but Mary has to marry the Dauphin, Prince Francis. So the Earl of Arran, he automatically agrees because he's thinking to himself he could do with a nice wee dukedom in France. And Beaton, well, Beaton didn't have a say in it at this point because he was killed by Protestant lairds a few years earlier. Yeah, so Protestant rule was sort of gaining momentum in Scotland at this point, which caused its own special layer of friction, but there you go. And Mary, like the worst game of Pass the Parcel, gets moved again, although this time she's gone to Dumbarton Castle. And then French troops arrive. Huzzah! They've come to aid the Scots against the English. Just as promised. And then near the town of Leith, I think in a wee nunnery, it was the Scottish Parliament meets and then signs a treaty with France to allow Mary to go over there, go into the protection of the French court and make an alliance by marrying Dauphin Francis. And at the tender age of five years old, Mary is sent to France. Like, not on her own. They didn't just wrap up the kid and chuck her over. No, no. She had, like, her own little court go with her, including, like, two of her illegitimate brothers and then the four Marys. Uh, there are four girls around about her own age, all called Mary. It's a common thing that happened back then. Nobility just kept naming after each other. Now, the four Marys, 
they are nobles in their own right, okay? So they are the daughters of Scottish noble families, like the big ones. And their purpose is to, well, surround Mary, become her confidants and become her quote-unquote friends-ish, but also to make alliances with rich and powerful noble Frenchmen. It just is what it is. Or, you know, any other sort of countrymen that are rich and powerful. Preferably also having a title though, because that's just how they wanted it to work. And when Mary gets to France, she is an absolute hit there with everybody apart from her her mother-in-law, Catherine de' Medici, who just does not take to this girl at all. But she can't really do anything because she's going to be the next Queen of France and she just kind of has to accept it. So... And Mary, she does well in French court. She learns everything she's supposed to learn. She does everything she's supposed to do. She learns falconry and needlework. And she learns how to become the Queen Consort of France. And that is something we really need to take into consideration because Mary's education in France differs greatly to the education that, say, Elizabeth and Mary Tudor had because of the women in their life, um, Catherine Parr, Anne of Cleves, the manner in which they were taught, they were taught to rule, to be self-sufficient effectively. Mary of Scots, <laughs> Mary of Scots, Mary Queen of Scots was never trained like that. She was never conditioned to rule in her own stead because she was expected to be the Queen Consort of France. She was supposed to look to her husband to rule, to make the decisions, and that the ruling of France and Scotland would be intertwined. So Mary and Francis are an interesting couple because Mary, she's 5'11", and this is in an era where women are not usually that tall. I think Mary of Guise was like six foot, I think, all in all. But yeah, Mary has an oval face, auburn hair, hazel eyes, she's 5'11", she's strong, Francis, however, is shorter than she is and is pretty sickly. He's not a well child. I think Mary's like two years older than him as well, so that probably doesn't help much. But like they got along really well. They were really like close, they were confidants, and they were very close. And if he wasn't so sick, I think things would have worked out pretty well for them, at least in France, if not anywhere else. On April 24th, 1558, Mary and Francis, they get married. So she's 16, he's only 14, and the French court, they marry them in this opulent royal ceremony. It is fancy as fuck. It is just massive. And the plan was that they would start, you know, popping out some ales, right? Because they're thinking she is in her prime... And he is there. So this is April. And in November of that very same year, Mary Tudor succeeds to the English throne. Now, because Mary Tudor didn't have any heirs, many English Catholics saw Mary Stuart as, you know, the next in line to the English throne because she had a claim through Margaret Tudor. Even though Henry VIII had made an act of parliament, basically cutting the Stuarts out of the line of succession, right? He was like, no, not happening. But many Catholics saw her as the rightful heir. 
after Mary. Mary Tudor, not Mary Stuart. Too many Marys. Anyway, and because Henry II of France can't help but be a dick, he decides to proclaim Francis and Mary as the rightful heirs to the English throne, the King and Queen of England, because Mary is the legitimate surviving heir of Henry VII of England. He even goes so far as to get like the English coat of arms in the French court to be quartered with the roses of Francis and Mary. Like, he goes all out. But the very next year, Henry has the terrible misfortune to be gravely injured in its summer jousting match. And he dies on the 10th of July, 1559, making Francis and Mary the king and queen of France. They're teenagers, and they're now in charge of a country. Meanwhile, back in Scotland, the shit is really hitting the fans. So Mary of Guise, she had brought in these French diplomats to basically maintain the Franco-Scots relations and alliances, but this really annoyed a lot of the, the Scottish lairds, when she should have really, you know, hired from within, effectively. So a lot of Protestant lairds, they had invited English troops up to Scotland just kind of to try and gain some more support for the whole Protestant thing. And Mary of Guise was barely holding on to any control because she had the use of French troops. And France are dealing with their own crap right now, so they send the Guise brothers over to sort of try and negotiate. But then tragedy strikes and Mary's mother dies. So she passes away in June 1560 and by July Mary Stuart's representatives have been sent to Scotland to try and hammer out a deal and so the Treaty of Edinburgh gets put together and that's going to remove English and French troops from Scotland and it's going to have France recognise Elizabeth Tudor as the legitimate heir to the throne of England. Unfortunately, Mary wasn't keen on ratifying that treaty, partially because she was grieving the death of her mother and partially because she also kind of felt that she had a right to rule England, even though she wasn't even ruling Scotland at this point. But okay. And so Mary, she's 17 at this point. She's an orphan. She's the Queen of France. She's the Queen of Scotland. She is married. But she has yet to produce an heir to the French and or Scottish throne. And at this point as well, there is absolutely no record of a whisper of an indication that Mary had been pregnant at all during this time. Now, there are a few theories as to why this is, one of which it's like they're just so young, like Marie Antoinette and Louis, like that's why, you know, nothing had been consummated yet. Another was because... The Dauphin Francis, or the King Francis now I should say, either because he was so sickly and so unwell or because he hadn't developed as quickly as he was expected to, that his testicles had yet to drop. And ergo, you know, no puberty, no pregnancy. But things are about to get from bad to worse for Mary. So in the winter of 1560, Francis gets an ear infection, but being Francis, this is not just any ear infection, because this led to a deadly abscess of the brain. And on the 5th of December, 1560, 
King Francis dies, leaving the 18-year-old Mary as a widow. And a childless widow at that. And after her customary 40 days of mourning, she starts receiving visitors. One of which is... One of which is Henry Stuart, son of the Earl of Lennox, who is very much trying to get in the Queen's favour. So Mary is a childless widow. She doesn't have any heirs to the French throne. She has no claim on the French throne. So there isn't really a reason for her to be staying around there, you know. And after she finishes her customary 40 days of mourning, she starts getting visitors from Scotland. One of which being Henry Stuart, the son of the Earl of Lennox. And he's trying to get into Her Majesty's good graces. But she has envoys and diplomats and everyone coming to visit her because because she's still young enough to produce an heir. She's still of good marrying age and she is of quote-unquote good stock. And Catherine de' Medici doesn't really need her around anymore because she's acting regent for, you know, wee King Charles. And so she's planning to just send Mary back. But she's going to make sure that Mary isn't pregnant. So they have to wait just to be sure. And then nine months after the death of Francis, she gets carted off back to Scotland. A place that's basically a foreign country to her because she was raised in France, in the French court. So she's arriving at a place that she just doesn't know and that's in political turmoil and that she doesn't really have knowledge or proper interest in. So when she arrives in Leith, in 1561, she has no idea what she's getting herself into. And when she lands there, people are well suspicious of her. So like the Earl of Moray, who is her illegitimate half-brother, by the way, is really suspicious of her, as are quite a lot of Protestant lairds, because she's a devout Catholic. She was raised Catholic in a Catholic country, and she's very much on the side of Catholicism. And it's not just the Protestant lairds that are suspicious of her. Elizabeth Tudor is also watching her because she's she's very suspicious and she kind of had a reason to be so like they would write to each other an awful lot and they would call each other like sister mm, like trying to have a connection but a lot of Mary's supporters or at least people who just didn't like Elizabeth saw Mary as such an appropriate sort of queen because of the fact that she was Catholic and because she had a direct line to the throne and they wanted to put her there instead of Elizabeth. And Mary, she was a wee bit ambitious herself. She wouldn't mind adding Queen of England onto her like list of titles that she's garnered over the years. So the Catholics, they liked Mary, or at least they tolerated Mary. The Protestants, eh, they weren't too keen. Like <laughs> the Earl of Moray would um, like chastise her for dancing and wearing elaborate clothing. Okay, cool. What? I mean, that's just, that's just silly. I don't care, that's silly. But she, like, charges him with treason and then he gets acquitted anyway, so it doesn't really matter because she's like, I'm going to charge you with treason. That's, that's great. One of, one of the most powerful men in the country and you want to just charge him with treason when you're not even established here properly. Not the best move, Mary. That being said, even though the Protestants aren't too keen on, you know, Mary's whole, you know, existence, she is surprisingly tolerant of theirs. Like, 
to the point that the Catholic party is really bloody shocked. So because of the Protestant Reformation, which happened like between 59 and 60, when sort of the English and French troops were being like removed from, from Scotland, and the ascension of Protestantism took hold, and lots of the lairds were, were Protestant at this point. And because Mary was so focused on gaining support for the English throne, because she was so focused on that, she completely had her blinkers on when it came to Scotland, like whether it was because she didn't understand or didn't care. She was so focused on grabbing this power that she was ignoring what she already had. So yeah, the Catholics are just super shocked that she's so accepting of these Protestant lairds. And like her Privy Council, the majority of them are men who already held office anyway, which is not the most silly of moves. But so many of them were Protestant leaders from the Reformation. And only four, I think, were Catholic in all. So you had Maury, Glencairn, Argyll, they were leaders of the Reformation. Um, there was more, but I just don't remember their names. But yes, Elizabeth is currently Queen of England, but she's not married, she has no heirs, and so she needs to name one for the whole line of succession situation. And Mary sends an ambassador to England to like basically fight her case and to put her in, in sort of in the line. But Elizabeth really doesn't want to do that because she feels like by naming her, it will lead sort of a wave of whispers in the Catholic camp against her, leading to more people wanting to get rid of her and replace her with a Catholic queen. Again, Elizabeth is one suspicious lady. And it's the early 1560s and of course, Mary starts playing royal tender and she is swiping through trying to find the right match. So things, things don't go well for her, basically like anyone else using Tinder. So she's trying to find a new royal husband. So her advisors, they're trying to get her to marry the Archduke Charles of Austria. And she's like, fuck this for a game of soldiers and chucks him back to Vienna. And for some completely unfathomable reason, she tries to woo the incredibly unstable Don Carlos of Spain, who is the heir apparent to King Philip II. And she is trying to get this match going, but Philip just completely says no, absolutely not. The proposal is denied by Spain. At this point, even Elizabeth gets involved in this weird matchmaking process, and she offers, of all people, Robert Dudley. That's right, the Robert Dudley. So she's offering him and she says to Mary that if, you know, if you marry a Protestant English subject, I will name you as a successor to the throne. However, this would also require Mary to come live in the English court with Elizabeth and Dudley, all three of them together. It's not weird, you're making it weird. Oh no, it's weird. Unfortunately for both Elizabeth and Mary, Robert Dudley straight up refused. He just was not into Mary to the point that he was just absolutely 
trying to do anything else. He was trying to leave the country to go to like Havana because he was like, I, I don't want to do this. Can you imagine being the queen of a country and having a lesser noble reject you? Like that's gonna suck. But that's not to say people weren't interested in her because Mary even had her own fucking stalker. That's right. There was this French poet, Pierre de Bascoussel de Chastelard, whose name I have completely butchered. You're welcome. And he was fucking obsessed with Mary. Like, they found him, was it 1563? They found him physically hiding under her bed. Like, that's where the chamber pots are, right? That's that's not a place anyone should want to be. But yeah, there he is under the bed because he is ready to surprise her and proclaim his love for her, which is really fucking creepy. But uh, they do like a security sweep of the room like every night and they find him and she's like, absolutely not. Get him out of here. Banishes him from Scotland. But this doesn't stop him. Two days later, he sneaks in again, waiting for her to get undressed. And she is absolutely fuming at this point that she just gets him for treason. And then he's beheaded. And yes, Queen Mary, she is out there looking for love. And who does she meet again but Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, who's, I think, they're cousins of some kind, because of course they are, they're nobles. And so they meet and he is incredibly charming. He's also known as the Long Lad. Take a moment. Okay, so this is because of his height. So he was over six foot tall and Mary is 5'11". So this is actually a pretty good, a pretty good height match. And this young fella, he knows what he's doing. He knows how to woo a lady. He's charming. He's witty. He can dance and he has everything that she is looking for. So they met, what was it, in February in 1565. And then by July of that year, they got married. So this is a bit wild as well because Elizabeth was involved in arranging this match. Like she had promoted it, but then when it happened, she was like threatened by it. And a lot of Mary's political advisors, they were completely against this. Like. Like himself, he had to get like a special like travel pass to actually go from England to Scotland. But he gets it again because originally Elizabeth is behind this. But yeah, Mary's political advisors are not keen on this. They're not happy about this. But she was smitten as a kitten. She was ready for this. I mean, she's in her early 20s. She's probably feeling some desire and stuff. And we don't know if her marriage was ever consummated with Francis. Like, we don't know if that was a possibility. And yes, in a whirlwind romance, they get married at Holyrood Palace in July 1565. And here's the thing, because they're first cousins and because they're Catholic as fuck, they are supposed to get a special dispensation from the Pope, from the Vatican, in order for them to get married. Um, but they just decide to do it anyway. And like, one of the reasons why her advisors were so against the match is because many of them knew what Darnley was really like, because he acted, you know, he had a lot of charm on him, but like behind closed doors, 
he was an absolute prick. Like he was violent and aggressive and he was effectively, think alpha male, think that kind of idea. Like he was just aggressive in every sense of the word and he grew up being conditioned to believe that he deserved the throne because he had, I think, a link on both maternal and paternal side to a link to the English throne, which kind of makes sense why Elizabeth was really unhappy about it, even though initially she'd kind of tapped them in the right direction. But yeah, do you remember her half-brother, the the Earl of Moray? Yeah, so he wasn't super happy that there was two Catholics on the throne in Scotland, you know, being a Protestant and being the advisor to the Queen. And so he instigated a rebellion against her. Like, you know how sometimes when all of your friends and family don't like your new partner, like, they just do not pass the vibe check? Like, this is, this is the medieval version, or Renaissance version, or one of the versions. So remember a minute ago when I said that Darnley was an absolute prick? Well, yes. See, here's the thing. He was vain and arrogant and had a bit of a drinking problem, which would then make him violent, although sometimes he was violent without it. And it was quite possible, or probable, it it was basically believed he had syphilis, right? That he already had syphilis. But, like, when they wed, like, she called him, like, the lustiest man she'd ever, you know, known. But, yeah, that's not surprising because her first husband was, like, a frail, sickly boy. Like, it's, of course he's going to be lustier than that. One would would hope, at the very least. But, yeah, soon enough, he was getting a bit pissy because she was the Queen of Scotland and he might have been a king, or there's no such thing as a king consort, technically, but... He didn't have any power because she was a woman and he was a man. He was her husband. He was supposed to rule her, like, blah, blah. And he was well mad and he was trying to force her to give him power. So he wanted what was known as the crown matrimonial. And this was an edict that would basically let him become the king of Scotland once she died. Which, here's the thing. Don't put stuff like that in place when your husband is a crazy, angry man. Like, let's not. Let's not do that. Needless to say, when this happened, he was none too happy. And being a consort really pissed him off because he was brought up to believe that he had power. That he deserved power. That he deserved a fucking crown. And when he didn't have all of the power that he wanted he decided he was gonna fuck around and get it. So their marriage is strained, to say the least, but not so strained that they do not conceive a child. So they're still, at the very least, knocking some boots, doing the horizontal tangle, or whatever position they preferred. I don't know, I wasn't in the bedroom. And like, I don't know if they were just lusty young people, or whether it was more of a hey, we need to get some heirs coming out here so that we have, you know, more leverage for gaining crowns and thrones and titles. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But she's pregnant and he still doesn't have that extra power and he's starting to get extra pissed off. And so because they've got tensions going on, she's spending more time with her her secretary, David Rizzio, who is Catholic, and this pissed off everybody. So he gets involved in this Protestant conspiracy. Well, I say Protestant conspiracy. A conspiracy with Protestant lairds. And this is including some of the lairds who had previously just rebelled against Mary when she married him in the first place. So that's happening. And on the 9th of March, 1566, he walks into room, she's eating her dinner, she's sitting there having a wee chat with David Rizzio. He comes in, wraps his arms around her waist, while the lairds drag Rizzio from the room. I say from the room, she still sees them physically stab him in front of her, all the while her lovely husband has a dagger pressed against her. So her husband and a group of lairds stab her private secretary 56 times in front of the very pregnant Mary. Which to Darnley seemed like a really good idea at the time, but for some reason, like two days later, he decides that, no, this isn't a good plan anyway, and he and Mary escape to Holyrood. So after attacking and murdering his wife's closest friend, he then switches sides and flees with said wife to Edinburgh. And there on the 19th of June, 1566, James VI of Scotland is born. Although I suppose he's just James Stuart at this point, but... So when James is being baptised, right, when he's having his christening... She is not keen on this, like, weird ritual. So there's this custom that the Archbishop of St. Andrews is supposed to spit in the baby's mouth at the christening. And she's like, absolutely not. No. And she calls the Archbishop a pocky priest. And she, like, removes James from him. In October of that year, Mary rides off to Jedburgh to see the Earl of Bothwell, who is severely injured. So she goes, she visits him, she brings like a bunch of like counsellors and guards and whatnot. Now after this wee trip, Mary gets violently ill. So she gets the sickness which basically causes her to constantly vomit. She's having convulsions and she's going a bit blind in it. Like it's, it's horrific. And there's like a couple of theories as to what's wrong with her. You know, mental stress, emotional distress, physical exhaustion, um, gastric ulcer, or 
porphyria, like that sort of pops up every now and again. But by 1566, the end of 1566, Mary is still very much married to Darnley and he is proclaiming he has no idea what happened to David Rizzio, even though he was literally right there in the room, like, when it happened. Like, he was there, but he's like, I don't know, I wasn't there. I mean, there's being a liar and then there's just being a bad liar. But yeah, she ends up having a meeting with her nobles to deal with the problem of Darnley. And so they're planning to, like, get rid of him, like, divorce him, pay him off. But they're trying to make it so that he asks for a divorce off of her and not the other way around. They want it to seem like he is the one who's leaving uh, because they don't want Mary to look like a tyrant because it's so easy to twist, you know, a female ruler. Even though Mary, granted, a pretty shitty ruler. Like, she's not doing great here anyway. So Darnley, he starts getting a wee bit worried, right? And he decides he's gonna, he's gonna go away for a wee bit. And so he goes to stay with his, his dad, or not his dad, but on his father's lands near Glasgow, right? And he gets ill. Like, some people suggest that it's smallpox, others say that it's syphilis. And of course, there's always the good old reliable poison theory. So anyway, he ends up staying in Kirkafield in Edinburgh because the Queen requests that he return. And so he heads back and Mary is out at a wedding celebration and what do you know, there's an explosion and Lord Darnley dies in incredibly mysterious circumstances, which we will be which we are going to be discussing in detail in this week's Betty Sode, because it is one of my favourite things to talk about ever. So it's January 1567, and Mary is a widow twice over. Now, naturally this caused some unrest, because, you know, the consort to the Queen, the highest ranking man in the country, has died under mysterious circumstances. Some would even go far to say that there was foul play involved. And as such, people are looking at Mary and, you know, her enemies are going to use this to her advantage. And they're looking at her dear friend, the Earl of Bothwell. And I'll be honest, it's not the worst idea. I mean, he wasn't the only one who people were suspicious of. They had Maitland, Maury, Morton, Bothwell, and of course Mary herself, they were all sort of looked upon with suspicion. And she even writes to like Elizabeth about it. Although, like, of the letters back and forth, one of my favourite things is when she explains to like Elizabeth what Dudley had done. And she was like, <laughs> Elizabeth's response was, I would have grabbed that knife off him, that dagger, and I would have stabbed him with it myself. Like, vicious, but funny as fuck. But yeah, um, here is an idea though, like when, when you want to marry someone, when you want to remarry, maybe don't marry the chief suspect in your husband's murder. It's just an idea. I just want to throw that out there. I'm giving people some advice because uh, obviously I can't give it to Mary because she's been dead for several centuries. But to the new people, maybe gonna no do that just a wee bit. So the Earl of Lennox, who is was Lord Danley's father, 
he was he was just foaming at the mouth. He was like, this man needs to be arrested and tried. And so they did. They, they tried him. And in a trial that lasted like seven hours, he was acquitted. They were like, not enough evidence, mate. Don't believe it. And then a bunch of people supported him, you know, in his aim to marry Mary. So yes, in April 1567, Bothwell manages to get support to divorce his current wife and then to marry Mary. So sometime between like the 21st and 23rd of April, Mary goes to visit, you know, James at Stirling Castle for, this is like the last time. So she goes to see him and then she is abducted by Bothwell, right? Now, we don't know what kind of happens and what's going on there but whether it was an actual abduction or whether it was like a planned situation there's also a theory that she was assaulted during this time and as such but we just don't have any clue as to what happened but on May 15th they get married so they get married they get married like just after he's been acquitted of her husband's murder. I mean, living for the drama, but yeah, yeah. So even though he had the support of like a bunch of lairds, right? The court, the Scottish court was not fucking happy. And they were just livid about like the marriage itself. And although she was out with like the customary mourning period, and because this was an option, the swiftness of it, and also the fact that the Queen was so easily swayed so quickly, it's it doesn't look good from her any angle. Any angle, this is just absolute bollocks. And this just, the shit hits the fan, really. Her advisors turn against her, her subjects turn against her. Everyone is pissed, because in their eyes, she's guilty as fuck at this point, because of who she's associating with, of who she bloody married. And so she is basically stripped of her power. And so it's May, she's just been married and she suffers a spontaneous abortion, otherwise known as a miscarriage. And when she got pregnant, we're not sure, I mean, if if she was um, assaulted in April, we, there really shouldn't have been much to to happen in May but I think it was before that so we don't know whether this was who this was from because Darnley died in January and she would have been showing February, March, April, May four months, four months so she could very well have been impregnated or it could have happened a little later by whom? Whom's to say? But again, there is the rumour that she was assaulted and as such, that's why she agreed to such a marriage. Anywho, by July of that year, 1567, she is forced to abdicate her throne in favour of her son James, who becomes James VI of Scotland and an absolute shitbag. Like, he is awful. But that's another story for another day. So Mary is basically being held under house arrest. She's imprisoned at Loch Levin for like 
a year. And she's only 25 at this point. So she's 25 years old. And she comes up with a plan. She straight up convinces the owner of Loch Levin to help slash let her escape. And then, for a full fortnight, for two whole weeks, she just starts some shit. She leads an army. She garners support of like 6,000 men. And she battles with her brother, the Earl of Moray. I mean, they beat her. But she fights them. And even though they absolutely kick her ass, she doesn't quite admit defeat. Um, she is, I don't know, a flair for the dramatic, shall we say. And she just fucks off. So she goes across the border to England, stays a night in an abbey, then gets a hold of a fishing boat to go across the Solway Firth into England in order to beg her sweet sister, her cousin Elizabeth, to help her reclaim Scotland. That's right, she's going to her rival, whose throne she has staked a claim on, to then ask for help to give her more power. Mm, mm, not a great plan, Mary. Not a great plan. Also, as we said before, Elizabeth was pretty suspicious, like, all the time. And maybe the person who may or may not have been involved in their husband's murder coming to see you isn't, you know, the most fortuitous of events. And so Elizabeth is mulling over this and then Moray sends what is called the casket letters because they were found in a casket. And there are these like eight letters which are love letters from like Mary to Bothwell and they're discussing like the plot, which mm, mm, was convincing enough for Elizabeth at the time, but like modern historians think that this was just like like a con. This was just a way to taint Elizabeth's opinion of Mary and not give her the support that she wanted. And so Elizabeth, she's on Moray's side and she allows him to get back to Scotland to rule as regent for the infant King James. And Mary, well, she says, Mary, that she's going to be lenient on her, right? But like, as long as she stays in English custody and doesn't get involved in any shit. Basically, stay in your room, don't get in any trouble. And so, for the next 20 years, or almost 20 years, Mary is kept in English custody. Like, she is to stay in England, and she's effectively under house arrest. But those houses are castles, and she has, like, a little entourage, you know. And she is basically, again, past the parcel, so she goes around. Elizabeth just keeps her, and just moves her around a bit. Because... She doesn't want to harm her because, you know, she wants to be seen as like a decent lenient ruler, but she's also really worried that, you know, Mary's gonna be involved in a plot against her and, you know, try and lay claim to the English throne. Which she does! So it's like, because during this time in captivity, like all of these plots trying to remove Elizabeth from the throne and pop Mary up there kept happening. But for the most part, she managed to not be directly involved in these schemes and kept, like, missing out. But by 1584, she is kind of sick of being under house arrest. She wants to go outside. Like, she's literally kept inside castles and stuff. I mean, she's got linens and, you know, fancy dresses and jewels and, you know, 
wine to wash her face with. It was part of her beauty routine. It, just, it was. And like she is just not feeling it anymore. And so she asks her 18-year-old son to help, King James, who has been brought up to not trust this woman, shall we say. And so he's like, absolutely not. Not even a little bit. Mm-mm, not helping you. And so, yeah. This is where things take a turn for Mary. Because by 1586, her luck basically runs out. I say luck runs out. I mean, it's a total cock-up. It's an absolute cock-up. So there's this Babington plot. So you've got Anthony Babington and John Ballard. They had this plan to rescue Mary and then put her on the English throne. And during this whole event, or this planned event, Mary played an active role in the conspiracy. And it was a good plan, for the most part, except that Elizabeth had a spymaster, and being a spymaster, he found out the plot. And what he did was very simple, but very clever. So he allowed Mary to correspond with the conspirators. He allowed them to send letters back and forth. And by doing that, he was just gathering evidence. So he gets his hands on these letters and he is decoding them because they're all written in fucking code because of course they are. No one's going to write, let's kill the queen and like block capital letters. And if you do, don't do that. That's just foolish. Like, at least make the code clever. So he reads it and it basically says that Mary is just putting her seal on it. She just is quite happy to use anything against Elizabeth and her approval is there of any means necessary, right? And, well, clearly, this is not good for Mary because this evidence is brought to the Queen herself. And so, on the 25th of October, 1586, Mary stood trial and the English councillors convicted her of treason and she was sentenced to death. Like, she was supposed to have her head cut off. But, like, Elizabeth was, you know, hesitating in the whole chopping off her cousin's head scenario. You see, instead of a big old public execution, there was a plot to poison Mary, like, before this could happen. Like, there was this whole scheme, but, like, Mary's handler was like, I can't poison her because that, that's against sort of basic morality. That's not cool. So then trying to sort of save face and try and make her seem like a more considerate queen, Elizabeth offers Mary a deal. If she confesses her sins and begs for forgiveness, Elizabeth will pardon her. But Mary is, I mean... They say pride is a sin and she is fucking proud and she digs her heels in and she straight up refuses to beg. She's she's not having it. She's not going to do it. She's not going to beg for forgiveness. And as such, eventually Elizabeth signs Mary's death warrant on the 1st of February, 1587. And her privy council, they're like, super, thanks, good, we can just go do this now. And it takes them two days to just, like, cross T's, dot I's. And on February 7th, so, like, six days later, she gets told that she's going to get her head chopped off. And so when it comes to the day of her death, 
She's like spending her time like praying and getting stuff in order. And while she's doing this, they are literally building a scaffold in the palace hall. Like, in the hall. And she finally walks up to the chopping block. She is dressed in like a black satin bodice, a velvet petticoat, and it's got these like crimson, like a deep red, like crimson sleeves. And this is like, <laughs> and this was Mary using her clothes to send a message. So like that type of crimson in Catholicism, like it is the color of martyrdom, like She's basically saying that she's a martyr to Catholicism. Like, that's... Okay, Mary, not that you were just really proud and tried to steal a bunch of stuff and was very terrible at ruling a country, but okay. But she gets up there and she's getting undressed by, you know, her servants and whatnot. And she makes the executioner laugh because she's like, I have never been taken care of this way before and I've never got undressed in front of such company, like... Yeah, this is this is what they call gallows humour. Like, this is what I was talking about. But so she forgives the executioner anyway because she's like, yeah. And so she kneels down, puts her head on and then stretches out her arms, expecting this to be like a noble and quick death. Um, it is not. So the executioner, I don't know if he was still laughing from what happened before, but he like, um, he was not the best executioner in the world. And I don't know if this was a deliberate choice by Elizabeth because she really wanted to like, or maybe her counsellors deliberately chose someone who wasn't like super great at this. But yeah, it was not a pleasant execution because the first swing it misses, so instead of just going down on the neck, it hits the back of her head. The second one hits her neck, but it doesn't completely go through, and it gets to the point where they have to like saw through the rest of her neck with the axe. Like they go, and people start freaking out a little bit because. Because they were not prepared for this. Um, so, like, by the time they actually chopped off the head, um, the executioner tries to lift up the head so they can go, like, God save the queen. And as he's doing it, to sort of be like, ha, traitor, um, it's revealed that she was wearing an auburn wig and that she had grey hair underneath, which is, you know, natural and or stress. Who's to say? But they go to lift it up and her head just drops and rolls onto the ground. And so, like, some of the people that are there is that they say that, like, her mouth was still moving. Like, the decapitated head, that the lips were still moving. And it was freaking just, like, all of these people out. Listen, you're all the people who decided to watch someone be publicly murdered in front of you. So, you deal with the gruesomeness of it, Okay. But another thing that happened that freaked people out is there was movements coming from under her skirt and out came her Maltese terrier. Like, she had smuggled a dog out with her. And so on the 8th of February, 1587, at Fotheringay Castle, Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, was executed at age 44. 
So Mary had requested to be buried in France, but Elizabeth just completely vetoed that. And her body was embalmed and placed in a lead coffin. And she was buried at a Protestant service in Peterborough Cathedral in July 1587. However, that was not to be her final resting place. Because when her son James VI of Scotland became James I of England, he had her exhumed and reburied in Westminster Abbey. And he did this whole thing about like asking for forgiveness to like seem like he was better. But no, no, he was, was all show. And so ends our story of Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots. If you enjoyed my retelling of this historic tale, feel free to rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. That was that was my radio presenter voice, wee bit, wasn't it? It was like, let's do this. Uh, don't forget you can follow me on all of the socials. I am on Twitter, I guess. I don't know what it X now, whatever it is. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I'm I'm on all the places. I'm on most of the places. Um, links are in the description down below. Oh, speaking of Edinburgh Castle, actually, that is one of the four castles I'm going to be visiting, going to be doing as part of Trover Trip. So it's a fun, going to be like private history tour trip with myself. And we're going to have a, another guide, but I'm going to tell you the bits of history that they usually don't want to share with you. Because, like, it starts in Edinburgh and then it goes up to, like, the Isles, the Highlands, or going to, like, the Isle of Skye. It's going to be super, super fun. Uh, there's a link for the Trover Trip information down below. And I think the first eight, I think it's the first eight, like, early bird people get, like, $200 off, off the cost of the thing. Which is, you know, anywhere you can save a buck. Absolutely. So, if that's interesting, you should just uh, give a wee clink and, uh get involved. Oh, and I guess it's time for recommendation time. So, for listening, I am going to recommend the Wine and Crime podcast, because we've been talking about, like, true crime podcasts and things like that, and honestly, the Wine and Crime gals, they are just, they are tip-top, they know what they're doing, and they're just not dicks, they're fabulous. For watching. If you or have not seen the Barbie movie, what are you doing with your life? Go watch the Barbie movie. And for reading, I'm going to suggest Lessons in Chemistry. It's just a good wee read. And with that, I am going to bid you good night. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye-bye.